this is um, Q&A. I think you know the ground rules by now. So uh, any question you want to throw out related to uh, interpretation, theology, ministry, Christian living, uh, all of those are viable, but not questions that try to pit faculty against faculty. That's the only sort of off-limit. So um, no guarantee I can answer any of the others, but I'll take a stab at it. So who wants to go first? All right, no hands up. Let me, uh, just before I get yours, I, um, uh, last month, somebody asked a question. I'm sorry, I don't remember who it was. I don't even remember what the question was, but it was somehow related to Romans 11, and I said, I wish you had told me you were going to ask the question because I have some really, to me, fascinating quotes I would have brought, and uh, so I mentioned them, but I didn't have them. Uh, well, it just so happened in the, just the timing of things, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark right now, and I'm in chapter 13, which is the Olivet Discourse, and uh, Sunday morning, um, by way of introduction to the Olivet Discourse, I had us go to Romans 11, because I believe Romans 11 is behind the Olivet Discourse, God's commitment to Israel, God's restoration of Israel is why Jesus is coming back. Anyway, so I used these quotes Sunday morning in my message here when I preached it, and it, it reminded me of the question last month by a student, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who, who it was, and I apologize that I didn't have the quotes, but I just want to mention some of these quotes to you. So I, since I had them from Sunday morning, I printed them out, and this is, uh, these are some quotes uh, from um, John Murray, who is a very uh, gifted commentator, a very gifted scholar. He's a, a leading amillennialist, uh, not believing in the kingdom for Israel. And yet, uh, in Romans 11, when I preached through Romans about 20 years ago, uh, always when I preached through a book, I tried to read broadly commentaries by people that I know I won't agree with and, and uh, people that are even liberal that maybe don't hold to the view of, high view of Scripture that I would espouse. But I just want to read broadly, I, and, and so I, I've just sort of, it's just a personal commitment I've made. I don't impose it on others, but before I preach through a passage, I uh, will read at least a dozen commentators on that passage from a variety of perspectives. So anyway, I was using John Murray for Romans, and I agree with him on so much. Tremendous scholar. Um, so anyway, as I preached through Romans, and we came to chapter 11, I was absolutely stunned by some of his comments on Romans 11, knowing that he's an amillennialist, so I wondered what he would do with Romans 11, which talks about God has not permanently rejected Israel, he will restore Israel, etc. And here are just some of those statements. So whoever you are that asked the question last month when I said, I wish I'd had these statements here, I've got them for you. So here are just some of the statements. He says this, There should be no question, but this is the fullness of Israel as a people. The stumbling was theirs. The fall was theirs. Theirs was the trespass. Theirs the loss. The fullness, therefore, can have no other reference. He goes on to say, This means that Israel is contemplated, is characterized by the faith of Christ, by the attainment of righteousness, and by restoration to the blessing of God's kingdom, as conspicuously as Israel was marked by unbelief, trespass, and loss. For if fullness conveys any idea, it is that of completeness. Hence, nothing less than a restoration of Israel as a people to faith, privilege, and blessing can satisfy the terms of this passage. There cannot be irremediable uh, 
rejection of Israel, the holiness of theocratic consecration is not abolished and will one day be vindicated in, in Israel's fullness and restoration. This must therefore mean the reception of Israel again into the favor and blessing of God in terms of the whole passage is noted repeatedly. This must refer to Israel as a whole and implies that this restoration is commensurate in scale with Israel's rejection, the restoration of the mass of Israel. And then the final quote is this. He says, It should be apparent from the proximate and less proximate context in this, support, in this portion of the epistle that it is exegetically impossible to give to the term Israel in this verse any other denotation than that which belongs to the term throughout this chapter. There is the sustained contrast between Israel and the Gentiles, as has been demonstrated in the exposition preceding. What other denotation could be given to Israel in the preceding verse? It is of ethnic Israel Paul is speaking, and Israel could not possibly include Gentiles. Israel could not possibly include Gentiles. In that event, the preceding verse would be reduced to absurdity, end quote. Now, the, the reason that's so remarkable is, frankly, I don't know what Murray does with these kinds of statements in light of his amillennial position. But it, God bless him for his exegetical honesty and accuracy because I think he said it better. In fact, I quote him when I'm preaching through Romans 11 more than I quote anyone else, any, more than any uh, premillennialists or, or uh, dispensationalists because he says it as well as it can be said. And again, I know somebody asked about this last month and I didn't have these quotes here in front of me, uh, but I had them from Sunday morning. So anyway, I wanted to pass them on since they were right here in my notes from Sunday morning. All right, now, now, next subject or next question. Sure. Right. Well, not uh, geographical, I think, not cultural, because um, it's interesting you pointed this song because uh, anytime I take a group to Israel, whenever we are um, down in the Negev, down in the Judean wilderness, uh, whenever we go to Qumran, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, um, there are places where you can see the caves, and in fact, I've hiked up to some of the caves where a lot of the Psalms were found. You can't go in cave, I think it's 53 now, where that, no, it's not 53, forget the number, but the cave where the Isaiah scroll is found, you're not allowed in there anymore because once a tourist got in, fell, and died, and so now they locked it off. And, but um, you can still go to the Overlook, and they have a big awning, a shade awning, where you can stand there and the guide can talk to you about the Qumran scrolls and the Dead Sea Scrolls and all that. It's a fascinating place to visit in Israel. But whenever we're there, I, uh, after the guide is done, I tell our group, okay, now you have to come out of the awning and stand out here. And they're all just, just complaining, just like, because you, really there's no way I can describe to you the heat there. I mean, when you're at Qumran, unless you're there in like February or March, but even then it's hot, but... If you're there, I usually take groups in May or June, and you stand out there, and literally in about 30 seconds, you're looking for shade. And so every time we go to Qumran, I make our group go stand out in the sun, and I read Psalm 121. 
And I said, this psalm will take on new meaning when you stand here and read it in the sun. And I point to the cave where this psalm, this psalm was found in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I say, it was found in that cave. And now listen to this. And you're, by the way, when you're standing at Qumran, you're looking at a, it's like you're standing at the base of the bridges looking at the M as far as the steep incline, except there's just virtually no, uh, there's just, there are no trees, no bushes. It's just desert, rocks, but steep cliffs going up. So you stand there and you read these words. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. So you're looking right at the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. Now again, you're reading this in the desert context where there's rocks. Even walking around there, we're always telling our groups, watch your step. We can't afford someone to have a broken ankle or you know, a twisted knee. And, and we've, I've had groups where that happened. Had to take them to the hospital. They missed part of the tour, etc. So he will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall not slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. Now, of course, the right hand, the place of prominence. The, so the, the Lord is your shade. He's your prominent shade. He's your exalted shade. And again, when you're there, you, you, I mean, you're looking for any bit of shade. In fact, when we're done at Qumran and we go back to the bus, if the bus driver is not there, you'll see everyone in the group lining up against the bus because they just want shade. I mean, it is that significant. I'm not exaggerating. So when the psalmist talks about the, the Lord is your shade at your right hand, the sun will not strike you by day, and it strikes you. I mean, it, you, you've, if you've ever been in sun like that, you've, you've probably felt, felt it's like needles, little needles, you know, especially where I'm bald up on top here, little needles on my head, and I'm always covering my head when I'm in Israel like this or wearing a hat. I mean, it just, it just strikes you. Uh, the Lord shall preserve you from all evil, etc. So I don't think it's so much a cultural as much as a geographical because in much of Israel, especially south of Jerusalem, in the Negev, in the, in the desert, the, the Judean wilderness. Well, I guess I'm just looking more of like, like, is there a day like there's a picture? Because I think shade, oh, there's a tree. Like, oh, he's, I mean, like wherever more into the constant shade. Right, so like that, right, sure, yes. Yeah, that, that'd be the idea. And again, when you're in the southern part of Israel, especially but even up north in Galilee, you want constant shade. You just, you, you know, and if you're, it's sort of funny, after you've been there for a little while with a group, uh, when we go to a site, people try to get off the bus quickly because at the site there might be a tree. There might be a tree. And everybody wants to get under the tree. And it's just, it's really that significant. So uh, I think there's just the, the geography of the land explains this constant, the need for constant shade. Yeah. Good, good question. Yes? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, well, a lot in the book of Judges doesn't seem right. <laughs> so uh, you can't cancel it out because of that, because Judges has some of the most bizarre stories in all the Bible. And, of course, you have that repeated statement, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So scholars are divided over that. You could read the various commentators who argue, and those who argue that her, her sacrifice was merely the fact that she was never allowed to be married, which in ancient Israel was sort of a curse. I mean, you know, um, and so um, 
because of that statement that they went into the hills and bewailed her virginity for this length of time, some scholars, some commentators will go there. Um, I personally don't believe that's what happened. It, the, the writer never does definitively state, but I think Jephthah offered her up as a sacrifice, which you're right, it was, it was bizarre. It's uh, totally inappropriate, but so many things in the book of Judges was like that. And uh, I think it was a, um, it obviously was a rash vow, a foolish vow, but I think it's one he carried out. I think he offered her up as a burnt offering. Well, yeah, I mean, you even have, of course, the story of the concubine that's cut into 12 pieces in the book of Judges, and you have, you know, a lot of people are perplexed. I, I agree, I'm perplexed too. Samson, the great deliverer, one of the most immoral men in Scripture. It's like, there's just so much wrong in the book of Judges. So, so much that's bizarre. Yeah. Yes? Mm-hmm. Putting up stores? Storing up treasure, okay, sure, sure. Um. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know how to comment on what he said, so I, I really can't because I didn't hear it. But just to say this, I do think that the subject of rewards is one that we as Christians haven't thought through maybe as thoroughly as ought to or studied through as thoroughly as we ought to um, because we sort of have this idea that it's all going to be the same when we get to heaven. And I'm not convinced it is all going to be the same. Um, throughout Scripture, one of the things that is attributed to God is that He's righteous. He's a righteous judge. So you take a Christian who has lived 50 years for Christ, sacrifice, sacrificial life, etc., and you take the, a Christian who's like the Corinthians. And so is it going to be the same in heaven for them? I don't think so. Now, if Scripture said so, then I, I'm, I'm willing to accept that. But there are some Christians who uh, do what Jesus said, and that is store up treasure in heaven. There are some who do what Paul said uh, in 2 Timothy, where he says, uh, I fought a good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Well, it's easy to assume, well, that's going to be all Christians. Not necessarily, because 1 John 2, 28 says, Little children abide in him, so that when he appears, you may have confidence to not shrink back at his coming. So are all Christians going to be excited to see Jesus when he comes back? Sadly not. Because, you know, do Christians ever watch pornographic movies? Sadly, some do. Now, if a Christian's watching a pornographic movie and Jesus comes back, are they going to be happy? No, they're not. So, so it's not going to be the same. Now, I'm, I don't know that eternally there'll be a distinction, but... When, when Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, the, the Bema seed of Christ, and he says uh, fire is going to try every man's work, some wood, hay, straw, some gold, silver, precious stones, the clear implication of that is some Christians will have lived their lives in such a way to be rewarded and some won't. And in fact, he says there in verse, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15, 
some will be saved yet as by fire. In other words, that the, the fire consumes all their works and they just sort of get in, but they don't have much to show for it. So all that to say, I do believe that the scripture does indicate that at the Bema seat of Christ, that there will be a judgment of our lives. And you indicated that, that Charles Stanley talked about longevity. Well, I think there's also something to that in this sense. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, uh, you know, don't you know that those who run in a race all run, only one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And that's where he says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, now this is a key statement, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And the disqualified there is disqualified from reward. That's the context of what he's talking about. So what Paul seems to be saying is this, I could live my life in such a way, serving Christ, preaching the gospel, but give in to sin at some point, not discipline my body, and thus I end up, for lack of a better way to say it, losing the rewards that I could have otherwise attained. And so Paul does seem to imply that you go along in life and you're living in such a way that the Lord would reward you, but then you go off the deep end, you, you, know, you give in to sin, and that you, you don't run the race with endurance, as Hebrews 12 says, and you forfeit rewards. John says, and I think it's 2 John 8, look to yourselves that you receive a full reward. Again, implying that, well, you could be going along and you, you may cancel yourself out from reward by making some foolish, sinful choices. Um, so, and again, if you put all the scriptural data together, all the information together, I do think it indicates that there is going to be a rewarding of Christians. It's not going to be the same for every Christian, at least at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, again, I don't want to imply that throughout all eternity there's going to be level distinctions. But, but uh, I mean, Jesus did say, lay up treasure in, your heaven, in heaven. And the fact that he says that to his disciples would indicate that not all believers do that. I mean, if every Christian automatically does that, Jesus doesn't need to say it. Uh, so the very fact that he says it and Paul says it and John says it indicates that Tragically, not all Christians live their lives with eternity in view and don't live in light of the potential of eternal reward. I, I can understand probably what you're struggling with because, and that's why even here I'm, I'm wrestling to, to be careful with my terminology because you can make the issue of rewards just a crass thing to where you're living your life sort of not because you love Christ and you love people, just to stockpile rewards. So if you word it that way, that would be obviously... Uh, not in line with New Testament thought, New Testament motivation, etc. But we tend to be pendulum people, so we say, well, it, we don't want to go over here to these people who are just trying to get rewards, so we'll just ignore the subject of rewards and just say, you know, that's completely irrelevant, you just live for Christ. Well, you do just live for Christ, but it's not completely irrelevant, or Paul wouldn't have brought it up even at the end of his own life. So there's a, I guess there's a balance somewhere in there. All right, good. Yeah, Luke. Yeah, the main difference between uh, historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism actually has nothing to do with the millennium. It's totally a difference on uh, historic premillennialists are those who say, well, I look at these men in the past, historic, who believed in premillennialism, and they said nothing about a pre-trib rapture. So usually premillennialism is, or it's often assumed to be a dispensational issue. So historic pre, I can't say the word, but premillennialists, 
historic premillennialists <laughs> say, well, listen, we don't want to be identified with dispensationalists. And, and, and that view is sometimes, our premillennial view is sometimes uh, tossed aside because they say, oh, it's just a modern phenomenon. It's the dispensationalists who've come along since Darby and Schofield and all that. So they say, no, 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 no. Look at all these men. And they quote church fathers all the way back who believed in a literal kingdom for Israel. And they say, that's where we line up as historic premillennialists, not as dispensational premillennialists. So a dispensational premillennialist would say, pre-trib rapture, premillennial return of Christ. Historic uh, premillennialists would say, post-trib rapture. So there is going to be a literal tribulation. They would agree with dispensationalists on that. There is going to be a literal tribulation, but there's not a pre-trib rapture. So they'll, the time of tribulation is followed by the second coming, at which time Jesus establishes a literal kingdom. That's the historic premillennial view. Yeah. Good. Um, the simplest way for me to say it is this, and it's, it's more complex than this, but the simplest way for me to say it is this. I believe women can occupy any role in the church under the leadership of men as elders. In other words, I, I believe that the office of elder slash pastor is, is designed by God to be occupied by men, and under that umbrella of male leadership, then they can occupy any role. Now, I say any role. Elders are to be teachers. That's one of the requirements of them, teachers. And so when it comes to teaching, uh, in, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul talks about a woman not teaching men. So I connect teaching, uh, feeding the flock with elder, shepherd, pastor, etc. So women, in my, my view, should not be elders, pastors, teachers of men. Any role under, uh, under that leadership of male leadership, I believe they can occupy. That's the simplest way to say Two, kind of two questions there. You, you have a stronger possibility of arguing conditional with the Corinthian passages because Paul is obviously regulating a mess with the Corinthian church. So he says, let the women keep silent uh, and because it was evidently women who were speaking in tongues and causing the chaos. And so he just makes this categorical statement. Uh, but you can't, so you might say, well, hold it. Paul is, is, uh, is sort of laying down a unique restriction because of the Corinthian church. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with that, but you have a stronger possibility of arguing that. With the Timothy passage, you really can't because in 1 Timothy 2, after Paul gives his instruction on women not being elders slash pastors, teachers over men, he gives two reasons that have nothing to do with culture. They're theological. And his two reasons are creation and fall. Well, it doesn't really matter what time frame you live in, what culture you live in, creation and fall, or creation and fall. I mean, it's the same whether you live in Germany or you lived in the 12th century or you live... So Paul doesn't root his teaching there in something cultural like, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, and that's another, it's a very complicated passage, but some people believe that the head covering in 1 Corinthians 11 is cultural 
because of cultural issues. Now, again, that's debatable. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with that. In fact, I don't agree with that. But um, you have a stronger case to say it's there's something cultural about it than you do with 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is, is so culturally irrelevant, or in other words, irrelevant of culture, uh, that I don't see how you can really you get around it. I mean, people try, but I just don't think you really can. The only thing you have in the Greek text that you could sort of uh, camp on to, to, to wrestle with is that in 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or usurp authority over a man, he uses a present infinitive, and most Greek scholars and grammarians will say that the tense of a verb is not nearly as significant uh, uh, when it's in the indicative as it is when it's outside of the indicative. So if you get outside, now you don't have Greek, so you don't maybe know what that is, but those of you who had Greek know. So when you get outside of the indicative, indicative is just a statement of fact. So if you get into imperatives, infinitives, etc., most Greek scholars will say there's more significance to the present tense there than just in an indicative. Because the indicative is just saying Jesus went here, Jesus, and it may use a present tense, Jesus is going, and it's translated Jesus went there, etc. So if you put heavy emphasis on that, then it would say a, man is not, a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man, that you, some could argue that the teach there is to be translated to be, in the, the, to be the teacher in the office of a teacher and that, that you could make an exception. In other words, again, coming back to the 1 Corinthians 11, that maybe if there's an occasion where a woman were to teach men, it would be an exception and she should wear a head covering to, to symbolize her submission to God's uh, plan of authority in the church. Uh, so it depends on how much you push that present infinitive. So, again, some would, some wouldn't. But either, even if you do that, it still doesn't change the basic position there that, that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying God's design is not for women to be elders and pastors and teachers over men. You bet. Great question. All right. Oh, one more. I have no clue. <laughs> I, I don't, the wheels burning within the wheels and spinning within the wheels. I mean, no wonder Ezekiel is flat on his face at some points during the book. I don't, I don't, I really don't have any clue. I don't. Sorry. I, I mean, I've read on it. I've listened to people talk about it. And there's some good suggestions, but it, it's, you know, it's just as if he's describing something he doesn't know how to describe. You know, and it's like, how, how do I put this in words? If, I may be mistaken, but is it in, there in Ezekiel 1 where he keeps using the word like? Does he do that? I think it's several times in his book he does, but it's sort of as if he doesn't know how to describe it. So he said, well, it was like this. Well, it wasn't this, but it was like this. And Yeah, he just keeps saying like. He's, he's a very 21st century teenager. <laughs> like, like, like. So, uh, all right, let's close in prayer. We'll have lunch. Father, thanks for the time. Thanks for a great semester as we're coming up on the Thanksgiving holiday. We have, certainly have many reasons for thankfulness. Remind us of that, not only at this time of the year, but uh, those of us who know and love Christ of all people should exhibit thankfulness throughout all the year. And may we represent Christ in that way as being thankful people. 
We pray in his name. Amen.